Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. We have a new podcast launching this week exclusively on Spotify with Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman called Music Exists. Here's the trailer. Hello, this is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. Hello, this is Chuck Klosterman. I'm a friend of Chris Ryan and The Ringer. And this is Music Exists, a podcast where we talk about how we think about music. Yeah, this is not a podcast where we tell you what music to listen to or we necessarily comment on what's happening in the culture right now or what you should be listening to tomorrow before your friends do. This is a podcast about thinking about music even when it's not playing. Yeah, how does music shape the world you see around you, the world you feel around you? How does it make you feel about yourself? Yeah, particularly if the music that makes you feel things about yourself is Steely Dan or Black Sabbath. Or Radiohead. Yeah, that happens. That comes up a lot. Music Exists, a podcast about Radiohead. (laughs) (laughs) Available exclusively on Spotify. David, on Tuesday, Donald Trump commuted the sentence of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, who was convicted, among other things, of trying to sell Barack Obama's old Senate seat. (laughs) What I want to know is, what does this mean for America's cable news stations? (laughs) Oh, uh, you could have gone a lot of directions with that one. I want to go as broadly as possible. Oh, Rob Blagojevich. He was just in the news before this happened, right? Because, like, Silver yeah. Fox Rob Blagojevich was a recent... <laughs> like, the, there was a picture of him with gray hair and, like, no shirt on in prison or something. Um, what does he look like now? Because he, look, he looked like an Illinois politician before. No, now. now he has great... Now he looks exactly like... I'm Googling him right now. He looks... Well, okay, shirtless pick aside. Here's a pic of him in a T-shirt. He looks like a guy who has a very... Of, like he was a pro Trump Twitter account with 10 million followers that you've never heard of, <laughs> but who, but like, he's yes. always, he's in his, like in his, in his profile pic, he's wearing a tie and he, and his bio says that he has like a daily TV show and, and, and it's on a TV network you haven't heard of either. Right. It's not even the blaze. It's no. just something totally different. Right. Um, listen, uh, kudos to Rod Blagojevich. I mean, listen, at least Trump is being consistent here. Right. Mm. When Trump was 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 acquitted or whatever by the Senate, when they chose not to take him to remove him from office, there was a whole lot of grumbling where it's like, well, if he can get away with that, why can't I just fill in the blank? And at least Trump is commuting <laughs> sentences and, and letting people out of prison who have done the same or similar crimes, the one he's accused of committing. Right. We're going to see this thing through. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> I mean, Trump, uh, Trump is uh, I mean, this is like such low hanging fruit at this point. Just like I had no idea that the swamp meant just like people who are prosecuting white collar crimes, you know, <laughs> like that. Trump is really just trying to just get rid of all the people who might potentially or just trying to just set the stage that like nothing he does is ever going to be wrong again. Um, it's a it's wild. But, you know, Rob Blagojevich, he's back in. And, and you ask, how is it going to affect cable news? Oh, God. I don't even know if you meant how much how, how overboard they're going to go in covering this or where is Rob Blagojevich going to work next. Oh, but. Rob Blagojevich covering the 2020 election is not is not impossible. Watch out, Rick Santorum. Yes. He's coming for your job. We are the I've got this thing and it's fucking golden of media podcasts. This is the Press Box, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, 
Media Consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. And actually in person today. Yeah. I always like laying eyes on you when I haven't in a while. You got the <laughs> Chris Hayes glasses now. Same. Um, these are actually vintage David Shoemaker glasses, but I appreciate that Chris Hayes is still in my corner. Did you get an MSNBC show um, since you've been away? <laughs> There's a lot of, lot of big things afoot over here at The Ringer. That's for sure. Lots and lots to get to today. We'll talk about Google finally paying news companies for content. We'll circle back to ESPN baseball commentator Jessica Mendoza and her role after the Astros cheating scandal. We'll bid farewell to reclusive novelist Charles Portis. Yeah. All that plus the overwork Twitter joke of the week. But David, let us begin with the drive to the Nevada caucuses. I said that right. Nevada. Which take place at noon Pacific time on Saturday. This is the London NFL game. <laughs> Of Democratic primary contests. Oh, God. Okay. Couple things that should be on our radar this week. One, there is a debate Wednesday night. And we know as of today that Mike Bloomberg is going to be Ooh. in it. A new NPR NewsHour Marist poll has Bloomberg checking in at 19%, second only to Bernie Sanders, who's at 31%. That was the last qualifier Bloomberg needed. So Wednesday night, set this up for me. Bernie over here on one side of the stage, Bloomberg over here. Right. Is it going to be as simple as Bernie saying, you know, all that stuff I've been telling you about billionaires trying to buy control of the American political system? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, there's one standing at my right. Yeah. This is it. This is the avatar of everything I've been telling you guys. He's right here. I mean, <sighs> I think that that's a very likely outcome. And if so, it will be the most perfect uh, poetic ending to just this comedy of errors that has been the Democratic nomination process, that they are seemingly go out of their way at every turn to double down on every mistake they've made before. This was supposed to be the election of like nobody gets screwed, right? I mean, this is like we're going to like Bernie mm -hmm. is going to have if Bernie's going to win, Bernie's going to win. And then at every turn, it's just like, how can we? How can we bend the rules to get more people up on stage next to him? To do just like pointing fingers at Bernie Sanders. Uh, I mean, we can talk about the the bending of the rules to even get Bloomberg on the stage, but like the fact that they can't, I mean, that that this litany of foul ups is going to basically end up with Bernie potentially getting a walk because they're just setting up his biggest foil right there on the stage next to him would be hilarious because I mean, I guess I'm taking it for granted that like anybody making these decisions would much rather have Mike Bloomberg as the face of the party than Bernie Sanders. But, um, you know, maybe not, maybe not. Maybe there's some Bernie heads in there in the DNC too, that are, that are pulling strings in his favor. I don't know. This whole thing is so bizarre. Well, whatever the motivations, I, I guess that's the one thing I would, I would ask is, are we sure this hurts Bernie or do we think it helps him? Because I almost think the latter for two reasons. Mm. One, to direct his rage, not at a faceless billionaire, but at that billionaire, yep. that guy right there. Mm -hmm. And two, that Mike Bloomberg has been running essentially an unopposed campaign, mm -hmm. minus a few oppo drops over the last week or two. Yeah. And now is a chance to see whether he holds up to criticism from everybody. I think, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation or there's been some speculation in the past several days, especially today since he's officially made it in, that he's maybe not the sort of person that will hold up to uh, direct real-time pressure. I think that's sort of beside the point. I think that he'll probably do fine. He'll under he'll, he'll underwhelm uh, to, to the audience that only knows him from his, um, you know, triumphant commercials. 
Um, and he'll probably be about what you would think he would be if you are familiar with Mike Bloomberg at all. And it's not that's not a knock on, on the guy on his performance abilities at all. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, Bernie has a real opportunity here and it's much easier to. Point at point at Mike Bloomberg and say that's the problem. Than to say than to talk about wine caves. To talk about the way that other people are raising money, or even yeah. to point at a really wealthy doctrinaire liberal and say he's part of the problem because that's confusing, right? I mean it that is. that muddies the waters. But to be able to point at a guy who was literally a Republican who literally endorsed <laughs> George W. Bush for president, you know, who, whose policies, even as a Democrat or, or as a as a as a uh, Democrat, big air quotes, yeah, 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 big air quotes. Um, or as an undecided voter or whatever. I mean, undecided, uh, I mean, yeah, voter, I guess. But um, no matter how you, his policies, no matter how you describe him politically, are retrograde, uh, conservative in all the wrong ways, and <clears throat> problematic, I mean, if nothing else, right? Um, and to the extent that he's made amends for that stuff, He's just literally contradicted things he said six or eight months ago. You know, what I mean, it's not this isn't a matter of evolution. There's so many problems that it's so easy to point at Mike Bloomberg. I mean, I, I made the joke to you, I think, last week that if I were in a debate situation against Mike Bloomberg, my entire prep would be 30 minutes of trying to do a bad Mike Bloomberg impression. <laughs> and every time he directed a question at me, I would just do an impression of him endorsing George W. Bush. That would be the entire my entire substance. But can we do that for Thursday's yes, show? By yes, I uh, work on my impression for exactly 30 minutes. But. It's weird. It's like the the more you dig into the Bloomberg candidacy, the more you realize that like you, it's you could do so much worse than that just by like in, like debating him in good faith, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's such a bad yeah. candidate, J- right? Just issue for issue, what you said, what yes. you said. I, I I I I totally agree. I just think there are all these Democrats out there, and this is why Wednesday night is such an opportunity. There are all these Democrats out there. I may be related to some of them <laughs> that are sitting there saying we just want to beat Trump. We need tell us who to vote for. We're mm-hmm. waiting for signals from somebody, right. whether it's the secret DNC people, whether it's people on cable news, where, by the way, Bloomberg has been getting an excellent hearing, whether Oof. it's TV commercials. And all those fingers have been pointing toward Michael Bloomberg mm-hmm. lately, whether it's a conversation on cable, whether it's relentless commercials, et cetera. Bernie has a chance to speak to people that might be skeptical of Bernie and say, this is why this isn't the guy. Mm-hmm. This is why this isn't the guy, despite all this earned and paid media that you have heard over the last couple of weeks. Sure. Let me make the case. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an audience that will listen to that. Yeah. Because they're, they're right now they're kind of in Bloomberg mode. And you see this new poll where he's in second place, I think kind of by default, mm-hmm. because they just don't trust anybody else. They either don't trust them ideologically or they don't trust them to win. Yeah. To beat Trump. And Bernie can kind of pick at that scab a little bit. Yeah. I mean... The entire the entire Bloomberg candidacy has been a national campaign. I mean, it's just been media buys. It's been, you know, self-adulation and glorification. And that's, I guess, what all politics is in, to some extent. But that, and that's fine. I don't know if I said this on air or said this to you before, too. But like if you could if just imagine if Bernie Sanders or someone of his ideological ilk was running the Bloomberg campaign, basically trying to of like skirt around the actual logistics of running for president. Yes. It would be, this would, people would be ad- looking at Bernie Sanders like he was the second coming of Mussolini. You know what I mean? It would be <laughs> it, like, 
it, it would it would it would not particularly Mussolini. And, and to talk about getting a fair hearing on cable news, I mean, I may or may not be related to people who have, more than one person who have told me they turned off MSNBC because of the because of the 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 uh, attention Bloomberg's been getting, or at least the tenor of it. Wow, um, which is significant, right? I mean, and 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 just the dismissiveness towards Bernie Sanders. I mean, just inviting on like really like no name talking heads to just like you know sort of lighting torches about the dangers of <laughs> of socialism, but um, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I we I'd said before that it was easier to point at Bloomberg than and or to say Bloomberg is a problem than someone someone else, another Democrat on stage. But it's also easier to point at a person on stage who represents so much of what you hate about Donald Trump and, and, and address them than it is to address Donald Trump. I mean, one of the problems that the Democrats have been having over and over again is making this an, a, a Trump election when they're going when they're sparring with each other. Right. Yes. When they're like in the weeds sparring with each other. You can I mean, I don't I, I don't know of any conspiracy theories that the Russians are backing Mike Bloomberg, but. Are you but like, you know, the far out? I mean, are you are you worried about the, about the Donald Trump is, you know, a plutocrat who's going to use his wealth to enrich himself and to and to institutional and, and to, and to, you know, or buy the presidency? Oh, well, look, there's a guy who's doing that. Are you worried that Donald, <laughs> are, you, are you are you do you buy any of these conspiracy theories that Donald Trump's not going to adhere to the two term of office limit and somehow yeah. like test the Constitution? Oh, look, there's a guy who literally did that <laughs> as mayor of New York City. <laughs> we have an actual example. I mean, it's just so perfect. I mean, it's setting itself up. Now, listen. We, I mean, it's it's a, a mugs game to to try to predict what's going to happen in a debate, especially when I mean, this is not a one on one slugfest. This is and 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 you know, if there's one thing we've learned from the previous debates, Bernie Sanders is the furthest from in control of the mechanics of the debate. Right? And no one candidate is, but certainly they're not like skewing in favor of him. So who knows what's going to happen? But it'll be really interesting to watch. Two more points. One is, don't we think? that we could have a repeat as, of what has happened at every debate over the last two months where everybody on that stage attacks Bloomberg and they forget to attack Bernie again. Mm -hmm. And they forget that Bernie is still the front runner in this race mm -hmm. and probably is going to win Nevada. Yeah. Bloomberg or not, who's not on the ballot in Nevada. Like we could be in for a repeat where mm -hmm. everybody just forgets to attack the front runner. First, you take yeah. out the front runner. Mm-hmm. Then worry about the billionaire. I think that there's a, a certain logic to that, just in so much as, as we've just discussed, that Bloomberg is a problematic candidate and, and should be, you know, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna hold your fire on one of them, that that might be the right move. Um, there might be time to take him down down the road. But you're right, especially in the sense that, I mean, Elizabeth Warren uh, is going to go after Bloomberg because she has shares so much of the ideology of of Bernie Sanders, right? And I mean, he, she's she's he's evidence of of most of her platform. The, the problems that, that, that you know, she's trying to fix with her platform as well. But also you have Joe Biden, who's just in dire need of a bump of some sort. Right. Ugh. And and Mike Bloomberg is literally like coming in on his corner. Right. I mean, I mean, he's, he's this. He has to do better than he has to be Bloomberg. He is riding and, on Biden's shoulders. And, and there's, Mayor, no, there's no different corner. That's right. the corner. And Mayor Pete has is of the of the, you know, top candidates. Uh, probably the only one that's shown kind of well. I mean, I don't want to dismiss Klobuchar, but of but but of the people above Klobuchar, the, the guy that's probably shown the most fire in the debates of late. You know, be like not just going after people, but having the sort of like the sort of like steely look in his eyes and fist shaking, counter punching, the counter punching. 
he's I mean, he's got to be worried about Bloomberg and for, for I mean, and he's and he's going to be willing to go after him. Absolutely. And when he fifth in that Marist poll today, like eight yeah. percent, something yeah. like that. Like if you're him, you're like, uh oh, mm-hmm. uh oh, because the, the worry always was you gonna do well in the first two contests and you're not going to get past that. Here's my second point. How is the story, the narrative, whatever the hell you want to call it, of this primary race not being written by somebody who is a combination of Aaron Sorkin and <laughs> Jeff Zucker? It, it, just because I think we get wrapped up in the day to day. Can we just step back for a moment and realize that here are a couple of things that have happened. An old Democratic warhorse who was the vice president of the United States was attacked by the current president in such a way that the current president got impeached mm-hmm. after or even possibly as a result of that attack, a Democratic socialist became the front runner for the nomination. <laughs> the centrist freaked out and then a billionaire centrist yeah. swooped into the race trying to buy the election of president of the United States to oppose the socialist. Yeah. All these things were not in some weird Sorkin HBO drama. All this stuff has actually happened. Yeah. How, I mean, I love it when the contours of fiction and actual content just become the same thing. It's unbelievable. I mean, it, right? This is incredible. It's a couple of degrees I don't want to sound like Rachel Maddow out here just hyping it. Oh, you got to watch. You got to watch. Stay tuned. But I just find the the master narrative of what's happened so far to be incredible. Well, I do think there's, I mean, I think that, that all of that is true. Uh, I also think that when you were talking about someone writing the uh, writing this, my mind, uh, I, I didn't know what you were going for. My mind immediately went to like, you know, the John Heilman and Mark Halperin's of the world who are, go- <laughs> who are eventually you. going to have. How dare you, sir? <laughs> there are, someone's eventually going to have to write the story of this campaign. And it, yes. and it you know. It's Ryan Lizza and Olivia Nuzzi. Yeah. That's yeah the- what, what tandem is going to, is going to. Uh, I just think that like there's so, there's very few voices out there, even journalistic voices that can do justice well i mean that will be able to do justice to a bernie sanders campaign the way that has been done to a hillary clinton campaign or something of that sort right i mean bernie sanders is is a different sort of politician and i think that goes i mean to to what you were just saying i think that the wild way in which this this primary has evolved so far it's all true but in some on some ways it does a disservice to to bernie sanders and the movement he's created I mean, and and I mean, then this goes back four years, over four years, um, and that like it's just the very base, just the very baseline part of the story that he is was ever in position to be where he is is a remarkable accomplishment and says a lot about where we are with our national politics now. So absolutely, absolutely, and like I said, don't sleep on the position where he is. No, he's it's sh- still the poll position until until we hear otherwise. I want to leave you with one note, David. You know how I love a mercilessly close reading of a news article that was probably written in 10 minutes. (laughs) Yes. I have been doing that a lot lately. And one of my favorite ticks of political reporters is calling whatever the next democratic contest is the all important (laughs) fill in the blank. So we had the all important Iowa caucuses, which Mm -hmm. had that phrase actually appeared in the New York times. Mm -hmm. Then it was followed by the all important New Hampshire primary. (laughs) Now, from the Boston Globe, just piping hot off the press. Here we go. They're talking about endorsements. Not Harry Reid, the former Senate majority and Democratic kingmaker here, by the way, kingmaker, oh my Lord, Mm -hmm. who is holding off on endorsing a candidate before this Saturday's, oh, wait for it, all-important 
Nevada caucuses. <laughs> now, if every contest uh, is all important, mm-hmm. can every contest be all important? <laughs> Shouldn't if you're all important, the next one can't also be all important. Right? Yeah. Do we yeah. need to get Craig Gaines in here? <laughs> yeah. Copy edit? Yeah. Craig, Craig, it would just be the important Iowa. Co- I don't know if that has quite the same flourish. We got to find some. We got to find some synonyms. And this is gonna... an oldie but goodie. This is like decades old. The all important Nevada caucuses. I get the the question here is just how long can we take all important? Right? Are we going to get into May? Are we going to get all the way to Guam or whatever the final one is down the line? The all important Guam Listen, caucuses. In some sense, you know, they're they're all important. No. They are all important. No, no hyphen. All right, time, David, for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. News, David, from the music world, from the world of music, as Marv Albert would say. I got this headline for you. Pneumonia forces Elton John to cut short the Auckland leg of his world tour. Pneumonia forces Elton John to cut short the Auckland leg of his world tour. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, I guess that's why they call it the flus. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And I don't I don't even think it's overworked. I think it was just one person made it, but I'm gonna king for a day. It it's overworked. From this weekend's NBA All-Star festivities. I know that you, like every living and breathing employee of the ringer, was watching the slam dunk contest, mm-hmm. uh, an event in which Judge Dwayne Wade took some heat for handing the contest to Derek Jones by giving a nine instead of a 10 to a dunk by Aaron Gordon. <laughs> right. The important part of that was not the mild rage on Twitter. The important part was the meme that came out of Dwayne Wade looking completely stupefied sitting in the stadium. <laughs> Some of my favorite uh, jokes off of that. Me, when I watch someone order a grande coffee in a venti cup at Starbucks. <laughs> this is this one was from Jamel Hill. When Popeye's is out of spicy breasts and it's only 1.30 p.m. <laughs> uh, and then Dwayne Wade on his own social media said, me reading through my comments like I was the only judge to give out a nine. <laughs> Excellent work there repurposing it. By the way, the, the official I don't I didn't pay all as much attention as I should to the to the scuttlebutt from all this, but I so I, th- I believe the official uh postmortem for this uh, for this crazy judging situation was that they the judges had agreed to make it a tie and Dwayne Wade we I think it was Dwayne Wade but somebody went off script and changed their score to, to, to... <laughs> That was his that was his that's Dwayne Wade's contention? No, I think that was another judge said that like we had all agreed that it was going to be a tie. Oh, my God. And send this to bonus round or whatever. And somebody went off. Sc- I mean, this is whoever these judges should be should be, uh, you know, organizing debates for the DNC or something. This is a fantastic. Funny you should mention that <laughs> because our friend Zach Brooks also gives us the inevitable Twitter joke. How many people called it the Iowa caucus of slam <laughs> dunk contest? If you chose to make fun of the dunk contest rather than get mad at it. Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, let us move to the notebook dump. And I want to talk to you about Google because reporter Ben Mullen, who collects scoops like I used to collect autographs, had another one in the Wall Street Journal. Turns out Google is going to pay for news at last. Wow. Uh, Unfortunately for 
those of us here, they are talking mostly with publishers outside the United States, including in France. Um, Google will be the second tech company that's talking about paying publishers. Facebook uh, beat them to the punch last year. I feel like I've read versions of this story before. I feel like this is something that surfaces every six months or so in different form. What are we to make of this? I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I remember the Facebook story. You're old enough to remember. I don't. Re I don't. I honestly don't know if they are actively paying or if that was just a, if, the, if it was <laughs> the, the, the earlier iteration of this. They were. Just, we're, we're we are uh, formulating plans. If you if you go to our if you go to our website Facebook.com, you can see our plan to pay publishers. Um, this is well, we've talked about this many times. Without creators, aggregators are eventually going to become worthless. Yes. Now, listen, there are a million caveats to that. People will eagerly click on a link that will lead them to a substance-free story or literally a, the absence of a story uh, as quickly or more quickly than they'll click on the actual news. Um, but at some point, there has to be news behind the click or you know, people are going to stop clicking altogether. Um, and the vast majority, I mean, it's so much of the media ecosystem is people not just, it's not just the, the, the people aren't clicking on, people are clicking on, you know, BuzzFeed listicles instead of the New York Times, but they're clicking on like blog posts that are, that are just repeat rehashing what the New York Times says, you know, I mean, it's, it's all part of this, it, it all, it all depends on these like original content creators to report the news, right? Yes. And it as, doesn't work if there's no and there's no they, times link. And at, at some point, people are going to have to start paying. For, I mean, people, some, they have to get paid somehow. Now, the institutions of The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal are, have been somewhat insulated from the crazy media world we live in just because they're institutions. There are enough people paying their subscription, you know, p paying for print subscriptions or online subscriptions to keep them in a position where they're able to do their jobs. For now. For now. But that's not going to last either. I mean, all you have to do is look around at all the newspapers that have just, you know, nosedived in the past several years to know that that can't last. So, you know, kudos to Google for going down this path uh, in the limited to the limited degree they are. Um, I, you know, one would hope that they would be that someone with the power of Google, I mean, specifically Google, could be figuring out a way to to make this work on a, on a more uh, you know, case by, I mean, on a more functional basis, right? I mean, how many people have hypothesized about, you know, what if you had an Apple account and you paid half a cent for every link you clicked on? You know, I mean, there's been, everybody has like thought their way through this and we're in the other. third decade of wondering that about yeah, and, and, newspapers. And, and, and I mean, Google. The iTunes of journalism. How many yes, fucking times have you heard the, that but, phrase? But the, I mean, but the, the roadblock to this up until now, or up until I guess when Facebook started this conversation, is that it it, it depends on Google, Facebook, Apple, you know, one of these major ma Amazon, one of the big major players to actually like institute it, right? Because you can't just like you can't have like a an app you can buy into just as like a charity, you know, like if no one, I mean, some people would do that. Right. I would do that because it would save me login, remember, remembering my logins where <laughs> everything are. Right. But more to the point, they should have to pay. They should right? have to pay. And not us have to pay. Because they're, because they're getting ad traffic from it. I mean, right. Google more than any more so, I mean, as much as anybody else. We should pay, but they should also pay mm -hmm. because they're doing this. I, I completely agree. And when I saw, I was thinking about the McClatchy bankruptcy last week, which we did not talk about. But basically, you have McClatchy, this chain of newspapers, newspapers all across the country, including our very own Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Mm -hmm. Uh, declares for bankruptcy last week. And I'm, there's almost a cynical part of me that says, 
Well, isn't this amazing timing? Because you wait until all these newspapers are half dead. Oh, for Google, yeah. Or three quarters dead, where they pose no threat to big tech at all. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, we don't want you to die completely. Because as you point out, if there's no Fort Worth Star-Telegram filing like a City Hall story every couple of days, Mm -hmm. we can't put that into our news product. Yeah. So here's a little chump change to kind of putter along at your current level. We know because of hedge funds and other reasons, you're probably never going to get back to the glory days. I'm certainly never going to get back to the glory days Mm -mm. or even close to that. But putter along. Don't die completely. And then, you know, hey, we'll feed your, you know, stuff which gets rarer and rarer into the Google machine or Facebook or whatever our news product is. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah. There's not going to be like the uh, uh, athletic of City Hall coverages around the country. Right. I mean, so. Uh, some, I guess not. I mean, there may be, but someone's going to, I mean. Sounds like you just said the next great <laughs> <laughs> journalism tech idea. Email me. Email me if you have some VC you want to hand over. Yeah. Um, Why I joined the Athletic of City Hall coverage. Uh, that'd be fantastic. But no, I think that there's, I think that someone's got to pay. I mean, some, I mean someone's got to, <laughs> really dark, someone's got to pay. Someone, someone's got to pay for this news um, crisis. But you know, I mean, and so this is, and, and Google is, you know, like you said. They should be paying. Let's talk about Jessica Mendoza, David, because Mendoza Gates or whatever it was called has finally ended. Mendoza, if you don't know, was an analyst for Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN. And also rather awkwardly, she was at the same time an employee of the Mets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mendoza went on ESPN and criticized a former Houston Astros pitcher for revealing the team's sign stealing gambit which meant that Mendoza was indirectly defending the Mets, her employer, who had hired a former Astros coach as their manager. Right. Uh, If you couldn't follow that, it was a shit show. Mendoza got the classic, we're giving you an extension demotion, whereby ESPN took her off Sunday Night Baseball, put her in the World Series radio booth, Mm-hmm. And then gave her a new contract. You read uh, the New York Post, Andrew Marshan for more on that. One thought occurred to me to the, about this, which is I hear this when I talk to ESPN people all the time. Whenever they have somebody who's calling a game mm-hmm. that the public is still getting used to, still getting their legs. Right. I mean, we've seen a hundred versions of this Monday Night Football and elsewhere. The one thing they always say is we're going to take this person and I know what we're going to do. We're going to put them on first take. We're going to put them on Mike and Trey in the morning. Yeah. We're going to run them through that ESPN car wash. Guess what? That's how Jessica Mendoza got in trouble. And it turns out that not putting your foot in your mouth when you're talking and arguing and having takes for minute after minute or hour after hour, that turns out to be a pretty underrated skill and a very particular skill. Yeah. We always make fun of the of the take artists on on the on sport on sports TV, but that turns out to be a big skill. And here's a case where somebody is just like talking about the. I mean, Jessica Mendoza having like a fiery hot take on on sports TV would not be in your top five things that could happen and could adversely affect your career at ESPN. Here we are. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, put, putting her foot in her mouth, I think, is an understatement. And I think in the in the the first time we covered the story, um, I, I mean, I'll admit I th- I kind of missed 
I mean, because you said the word car wash. I mean, this was this wasn't a one off statement, right? I mean, she basically made the statement three times in mm-hmm. one visit to Bristol. You yes. know, went went down the the list of shows and, and doubled down. I kind of I think I was a little bit oblivious to the really pointed nefariousness of the whole thing, which was like the defense of Carlos Beltran, right? I mean, the defense of like current Mets employee Carlos Beltran. Yep. Um, whose name she didn't mention. I don't. I, I believe she'd never in in the entire car wash. Once again, she didn't mention anybody's name except for the pitcher who. Who who leaked the story? Mike Fires. That's right. Um, so yeah, this is a really hard thing to do to go out there and not make a fool of yourself on these ESPN daytime shows. Um, it's a particularly hard thing to do if you're conflicted, <laughs> if you have conflicted interests, uh, like spilling out of your pockets. Right? Um, it's just a, it's amazing, and it's again, this is the fact that she did. She did three of these shows. And by the way, uh, reconstructing this timeline in my mind, I'm indebted to Ben Koo of Awful Announcing, who wrote a good column on the subject. But he points out, I think, that it was that the fact that she did all three means that, like, there were multiple sign offs on this. This wasn't like her popping up on, on local radio because someone called her while she was doing something else. No. Right? This I mean, is this what was, they want her to this do. This is exactly what they want her to do. She came on with Let's a, put her out there. Yeah. This is our expert baseball commentary. we got a huge baseball story. And it turns out that some takes can actually be too hot, especially when they're, like, really problematic. <laughs> when, especially when you're, when, when you're just right in the middle of all this stuff. It's yeah. so, I mean, it was just such bad form for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. She eventually walked it back and failed at walking it there back. There was a statement on Twitter. And let's be honest, like, a lot of this arises from people being dissatisfied at Sunday Night Baseball and particularly Mm Jesse Mendoza on Sunday Night Baseball and how that whole three-person booth with Matt Vaskirgin and A-Rod was working Mm -hmm. because yeah, I'm comparing her to Charles Barkley is 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 not particularly useful. But if Charles Barkley had done a don't snitch take, which by the way, Charles Barkley has actually done, if you uh, jump onto Google and find that, Mm -hmm. nobody would care. It'd just be like, oh, I mean, people get mad, but nothing would happen, right? This is... Her position at Sunday Night Baseball was precarious to, to start with. Mm-hmm. Then this happened. It yeah. highlighted this conflict that everybody had said, like, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And here we go. She got a new job. Yeah. And to come down just di- defiantly on the wrong side of history. And not just like this was this is when we look God. back, this will look like a bad statement. This was immediately in real time. Everyone was just like, what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, it wait. was not bad luck. It was just bad. <laughs> that was just there was no, terrible. We didn't even need to go to bad luck, right? It was just this is this is the wrong take. Yeah. This is wrong. David, from the world of letters, from the world of underappreciated letters. Oh, yes. Novelist Charles Portis died mm-hmm. on Monday. Let's briefly make this into a media story just to satisfy the terms of our agreement here at the Ringer Podcast Network. And then you and I can just talk about why you love Charles Portis. Great. He was 86. He famously did not do publicity. Yeah. Jonathan Lethem once said he's everybody's favorite least known great novelist, Mm -hmm. which I love. Um, Portis refused interviews to even admirers like the journalist Ron Rosenbaum, who wrote in the... Let's see, what is this? January 1998 issue of Esquire. Portis has become the subject of kind of a secret society, a small but extremely elite, if I say so myself, group of admirers among other writers who consider him perhaps the least known great writer alive in America. Tell me, and I and I remember seeing several Portis books on your shelf back in our <laughs> cohabitating days. 
What was interesting or distinct about the cult of Charles Portis? Yeah, I mean, the secret society is an interesting use of. Uh, uh, Remember, this of is nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, so, so it's still harder to find. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's inter- yeah. I mean, most of most everything except True Grip was probably out of print in ninety eight. Maybe Dog of the South was in print. Um, but Secret Society is, is, I mean, interesting choice of words because he wrote about the Secret Society in Masters of Atlantis, which is a fantastic, um, underappreciated, even on his own terms, novel. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, it's not just Secret Society. I, the, the phrase I always find myself using is secret handshake, where you you would find yourself. Um, I mean, I used to work. I mean, I, I don't know if this is full disclosure or like, holy hell, listen to my story. I worked at the Overlook Press. We we reissued Charles Portis. It's one of the reasons I went to work there. They just put out Dog of the South. And I was like, this is fantastic. Like, mm-hmm. And I was with that Ron Rosenbaum essay as like the afterward appended to it. Um, and it was when people found out that I worked at the Overlook Press, they would just be like, oh, wait, you guys are doing Charles Portis? And I would, I mean, they would know, like people who know Charles Portis knew the Overlook Press. I mean, they, they, they made all the connections. It was, he's, uh, the Dog of the South is, I mean, The Dog of the South is a novel about a man who goes on a road trip to track down his wife who has left him for another man. So he's like following them down many thousands of miles of highway. It's hilarious. He each encounters a bunch of crazy people. Wild things happen to him. But this is not The Grapes of Wrath. You know, this is not there is not some deeper, uh, you know, message that that can be blown out for, you know, metaphorically through generations or anything. And yet this book is considered like one of the Bibles of the Simpsons writing staff. You know Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, it's the sort of like, it's the book that you just like hand to people when they're just like, what should I read? Just like, don't even ask, just like take this and go. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's, he's just a fantastic writer and um, his sense of humor, his self, self-deprecation, I guess, can you say self-deprecation when you're writing fiction? I don't know, but there is like an inherent sense of self-deprecation with his protagonists and, um, Everything is just so wry, just so, I mean, it really is a, it really was a sort of sense of humor that was before its time. And, and very literally, I mean, he had, a, he had a sense of humor that is, would be incredibly successful in television writers rooms today. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's to say nothing of the past decade in the time before, but he's, j- it's, there's just a sort of precision and pitch perfectness to the way that he writes almost every line. Um, we can talk about his journalistic career, but there is that sort of precision that comes with the practice of journalism, um, minimalism, you know, a sort of like every sentence counts sort of feeling. Um, and just sort of this undying interest in, it's not an undying interest in the world around, it's not, this isn't like Jonathan Franzen, like, like I'm going to take on the pathos of the day. Mm-hmm. This is a very specific, or the ethos of the day. This is a very specific, I'm going to take on the pathos of that guy sitting at the other end of the bar. And every page addresses a person that he encountered in real life. And sort of like, and 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 so his novels didn't all hold together as, or didn't all build, you know, every page wasn't part of constructing this greater idea, but that it was all part of the narrative of, of seeing of like identifying and of finding like a rich, deep humor in everything that he saw, which is, just, I mean, it's just an un, unmatchable skill. And when you when you talk about it that way, it's no wonder that Ron Rosenbaum loved Charles Portis, yeah. a guy who himself writes in this great comic journalistic voice mm-hmm. and a guy who is, a, who is, I think, obsessed is fair word for to say about Ron Rosenbaum with secret societies himself. Yeah. 
who could who wanted to look into that and say, what does this say about us mm-hmm. and our need and our and our need to look at these things and think about these yeah. things? Um, Portis's fans included the Coen Brothers, yeah, remade True Grit, the late Nora Ephron, Roy Blount, who said, uh, apropos of what you mentioned a minute ago, no one should die without having read Dog of the South. Mm. Rosenbaum said that if if one novel could be read aloud to him in the hours before his his death, it would be also be <laughs> Dog of the South. It's such a good book. Um, Alex Hurd had this in the New Republic. Uh, the Dog of the South dot 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 has been published to good had been published to good reviews. But so-so sales back in 1979. In a belated show of support, employees at the at a now-defunct Madison Avenue bookshop bought 183 remaindered copies of the novel. <laughs> and with help from a Tiffany's designer, set up a window display that featured a mannequin representing the main character lying on the floor wow. amid piles of the books. This er act of Portis love was written up in several newspapers and led to a 1985 reissue. Mm-hmm. It's another thing. You mentioned the Overlook Press. Remember the time when you couldn't find oh, books? Yeah. I mean, today, right? The idea that Charles Portis would be unattainable mm-hmm. uh, and not just unattainable on like a Libris or something, but just little. I cannot get this book. Oh, yeah. And it would be like wild goose chases, too. Like you would go to the bookstore. Maybe like the the borders would have like the you know the stones to tell you like we just can't get this book or whatever. But sometimes you go to an independent bookstore, you go somewhere, and they'd just be like, "All right, I have that on order for you. We'll let you know when it comes in." And then just months would pass, you and then you get this random in. call, yeah, like two years later, it's like we got your book, yeah, and you'd be like, "What? Yeah, I ordered that." I mean, it was. Yeah, things were just complete. There are things you absolutely couldn't get. The one thing you could always get from Charles Portis was True Grit because it was from the moment it was published was a sensation. Was made into the movie that um, that got John Wayne his only Oscar. I mean, everybody knows obviously the Coen Brothers, as you mentioned, remade it. Um, and both versions of the movie are really, really good. The book is well. The Coen Brothers did a better job than the original. I mean, the original is. I mean, it's incredible. The Coen Brothers did a better job of sort of getting at the idiosyncrasy of Portis. But Portis kind of hated the book, and that's part of partly what drove him into seclusion, or hated the attention that the book got. He didn't want to be the guy who wrote True Grit. It um, gave him financial independence, mm-hmm. I think Rosenbaum pointed out. Yeah. But it sits weirdly, and I'm quoting from his piece again too, or, or, or sort of subtweeting his piece, but it, subs- it sits oddly in the canon. With the other books. Oh, and I mean, I think you can say it's it's it doesn't fit necessarily with the other books, but you can also look at it as as him retreating because he retreated obviously from public life. He lived, you know, in a in a, a Arkansas apartment above a bar or something for <laughs> for the second half of his life. But I like retreating from public life means but, living in Arkansas. Yeah, exactly. He he retreated from public life, but he also sort of retreated back to what he was doing before. I mean, Norwood was a book. It was his first novel, and it was a relatively felt very smart book about. Um, a guy who goes on a road trip tracking somebody down and then true grit happens. And then he goes, then after that comes dog of the South, which is sort of the same thing. And then, I mean, there, there's, and, and masters of Atlantis is sort of like globe trotting book. I mean, he, he's very much a road trip writer. I mean, and that's what true grit was too, but he stayed out of He stayed out of the trip. old West. Yeah. I'll say one last thing before we move on. When I was working there at the Overlook press mentioned earlier, Charles Portis did not have email. Unsurprisingly, he, I guess had a phone that we were not, that we did not call. It's apparently an unlisted number um, back when that also existed. And back when you respected those sorts of things, even if you had it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember the publisher at one point, 
wanted to try to extract his last novel from him. And Peter Mayer, who also died recently, um, uh, Peter got on a plane and went to Little Rock and f- went to and just showed up on his doorstep and they went out for a beer and he tried to, you know, he he eventually, I think, got a collection of essays out of him, you know, got, got the permission to publish something different. But um, that was how, you know, he he wasn't immediately accessible. And I I probably wrote him a couple of letters because that's how we had to get in touch with them. And I think the first time I wrote him, it was probably about some covers I had designed for his books. It certainly was about some covers I designed for his books, but I used the opportunity to to sort of praise him, you know, sure. to be like, I, you're the greatest writer. I mean, I'm As sure one I, would. Yeah. I, and I'm sure I was, I was, you know, tactful a little bit, but there's only so much you can do when you're Ugh. like in your early mid twenties and you have the chance to write a pin, a letter. Hell yeah. I mean, th- and this is so much, there's you so much, have a reason to write a letter yeah, to Charles but Portis. The pressure is sky high too, right? This is like, you're one of your favorite writers and you are writing to him. You are not dashing off an email even, you know, this is like a formal, I am putting pen to paper sort of situation. He wrote me back. And I think he only wrote me back one time this to this one. He wrote me back on a piece of paper that was probably three or four inches square it was typewritten on that small piece of paper with uh-huh. a typewriter. He addressed me formally, ignored every compliment I had given him, and suggested that maybe his name was a little bit too large on the cover. <laughs> wow. And that's my interaction Folks, with Folks, if Porter. you're still writing your obits <laughs> about a reclusive novelist who didn't want attention, you can, you can use that one for free. All right, time for David Shoemaker Guesses a Strain Pun Headline. Friday's headline. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I stepped on your I stepped on your sigh. This is what happens when we do the pod in person. <laughs> Friday's headline about Jeremy Corbyn was Corb your enthusiasm. Yeah, that's a good one. Today's headline comes from Greg Wyshynski. Oh, wow. Okay. Hockey columnist extraordinaire, or as we like to think of him around here, Ruby Evanson's husband. And occasional Masked Man show guest. Oh, yes, that's right. Forget about that. This is from Texas Monthly, David. It's a story. About something I am almost loath to mention. Oh, no. The woman who reclined her seat in coach and made the guy sitting behind her incredibly angry. Wow. I shouldn't even say it that way. And the guy got incredibly angry. Can I have a quick aside about this story? Oh, God. I, this is I the almost, kind of thing we like to avoid. I almost, like what color is the dress or yeah, whatever. I almost said that I suggested we talk about this on the show because I saw, I, I was confused. I, I heard audio of this situation is like okay I, <laughs> you I was, heard it on the radio no i heard i think i heard it from the next room but like wanted to see the video because i assumed this was something terrible right it turned out to be so unterrible it was kind of mind-boggling but I, I googled it and the first thing that came up was a today show segment about it like the day that it happened and i know the today show is not you know the gray lady or anything but like it did seem even for them like <laughs> this is what we're doing now we're just covering memes and, like the, it, and the woman did like a tour i think eventually yeah the woman oh, like, in the seat did a tour of the shows pretty sure i saw her out and about yeah uh, is anyway this piece does not take a side in texas monthly david <laughs> it's mainly about how terrible air travel is generally yes and how and here i'm leading you a bit it shows how society writ large is going down the toilet this particular little moment what was Texas Monthly's going down the toilet. Strained pun headline. Um, first of all, what was the seat doing? Recline. Oh, the mm. the recline of mm. the recline. I was going to say the rise and fall of no the, the the decline of what is it? I'm waving David around like a the, third base coach <laughs> yeah. here. The recline of modern civilization. The recline of Western civilization. Of Western, that's what there it you is. go. All right. The recline of Western civilization. 
God, I love. I'm it. glad you waved me on. I was going. I was. I was definitely. I was trying to figure out what the what the you know. Please return your chairs to their upright positions. Is for the bathroom on the airplane. I was just. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Erica Cervantes and Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Friday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian. Uh, if you couldn't follow that, it was a shit show. Right. <laughs>